Hi, I'm Yolanda Brown and come on in to LPO Offstage. This is the podcast that finds out the real life stories and inner workings of the London Philharmonic Orchestra with the musicians themselves. And it's exciting to be back. This is the first episode of the third series. It's been so wonderful getting to know the musicians and about how everything works behind the scenes. Today we'll be discovering what it's like to play Berlioz's Symphonie Fantastique and what makes it such an impressive, extremely passionate and fascinating piece. We're joined by oboist Alice Monday and percussionist Henry Baldwin, who both starred in series one of LP Offstage. Welcome back, Alice and Henry. Hi, Yolanda. Hi, Yolanda. Hi, nice to see you again. Hello. Well, I can't believe it's been almost a year since we spoke for the podcast. Um, how have you been, Alice? What's been happening in the past year? Yeah, well, yeah, I can't believe it's a year either. And we're all a bit more experienced on using Zoom and microphones. So it's <laughs> a little bit less stressful getting getting attached today. But yeah, we're kind of back and it's it's great. It really is. It really is. And Henry, how have you been in the past year? Uh, it's been quite a year, really, because lots of babies have been arriving in my family. So that, that's, oh, congratulations. Uh, yeah. So, which is great. I also, like Alice, did some of Glyndebourne and a few bits and bobs last season. Percussion was one of the instruments that was often dropped with a slightly smaller orchestra. So I was a bit less busy than Alice. So there's been a, the first foreign tour, but I missed that uh, for baby reasons and everything. So I'm um, I've had a little bit of time off just recently, but really looking forward to the beginning of next season and getting back into things. So today we're taking a deep dive into Berlioz's Symphonie Fantastique, a huge symphonic piece in five movements, which describes the inner turmoil of an artist in love with a woman who doesn't feel the same way. It's quite a wild ride and the descriptive nature of the movement's passions, a ball, seen in the country, march to the scaffold and dream of a witch's Sabbath certainly paint a vivid picture of this pretty trippy work. Alice, can you tell me the first time that you ever played this symphony? The first time I played it was actually when I was at the Royal Academy studying. I think it was my last year of studying. It was quite a big occasion. I was playing the Anglais part, so um, it's not involved in a lot of the piece, but when it is, it's very solo-y. But it was with Sir Colin Davis. I think it was... I worked with him about three or four times before he died, but that was the first time. And it was with the Academy, it was a joint thing with Juilliard School. They'd come over and it was like we were sort of sat in amongst each other. So it was a bit of a sort of exchange project as well. And it was a prom as well. So it was quite a big thing for the Academy and it was really exciting. And it was great to work with Sir Colin Davis. He was great. I remember he he used to, he was very nice and he used to call me Lady Alice, which was lovely. But I don't know why that has never stuck. Nobody calls me that anymore. (laughs) (laughs) Henry, spread the word, spread the word. Oh, that must have been a lovely experience. And it was it's such, a, it's such a huge, you know, exciting piece, especially to play as, like sort of early on in my experiences with orchestral music, really. And um, it was really a good thing to do. And Henry, when was your first time playing this? Similar to Alice. It was when I was quite young and in a youth orchestra. The thing about this piece is it's um, very challenging to play, but in a way that young people can kind of get their heads around. And it, and it ticks a lot of boxes for teaching uh, young musicians about ensemble and about doing scary solos and kind of off stage on all that kind of stuff. So I did it. It was also at the proms. Oh. It was with Roger Norrington. Is he a sir? 
Sarah yeah, Roger Norrington. Roger, yeah, Sarah Roger Norrington with NYO. And that was probably, when would that have been? 2000, around 2000, 2001. So a long time ago now, because I yeah. guess I'm getting quite old, aren't I? Never, um, never. <laughs> but the one thing I would say about this piece is it gets played quite a lot. And yeah. um, I think there are probably performances that you do which feel a bit like it's just the middle of a season. It's just a tick in a box. Oh, let's whack out a Symphony Fantastic. But I've been very lucky to do a few performances like that uh, youth orchestra one that, that are very special at the pinnacle of a season or or a special project and I think this music lends itself to that it's I mean it's just so amazing and I always think that because people always talk about it being radical for its time the orchestration the harmony the everything I kind of think it's almost still sounds pretty radical now mm. compared to a lot of the music that we play that was uh, written after that. So it's it's always really exciting to play. And usually I get to do my thing, which I really like to do, which is hit something really hard. Pretty much every instrument does something really loud in the percussion section. So, And uh, do you have a favourite section, Alice? I mean, is it the oboe solo or is there another part of it that playing it or just hearing it that you really enjoy? It's just such a, the whole piece is just such an experience. I mean, of late, the last few times I've done it, I've always done off stage. So it's become a, kind of become the thing that I do more. But I've played, mm. I haven't played first oboe in it, but I've played all the other parts. But I do love that bit, the offstage bit. It's such a weird kind of sensation to be often playing in a cupboard somewhere or very lonely feeling uh, it's quite a skill to do actually just it's just something you sort of have to train your brain yes it's, uh, it's you, sometimes you have a monitor so sometimes you'll have a screen with the conductor on it so you'll be watching the screen but playing with the orchestra by yourself right sometimes you have your own conductor I've done that which is often weird because they're kind of following a conductor so they're always going to be a little bit delayed uh, sometimes you have no conductor and no monitor so that's just a bit cross your fingers and hope for the best <laughs> Just wait for the coral bit to finish. (laughs) So, so there's always it's always different. There's always something, and the acoustics are always different. You know, you can be in, like, say, in a cupboard. You could be literally just backstage, or it's always different. So you always have to adjust. I think I've probably done it about twenty times or something. You've led me down. I was I was really saving this to later on, but now I'm intrigued. I'm coming to you, Henry. But uh, let's just delve deeper into this offstage solo. So, where does this come in the symphony? It's in the third movement, so it's just after the the ball, the the dance thing. So as soon as I start hearing that, I'll start getting limbered up and right. I need to get to my position, and then it's just after that. So there's been a big dance scene, and then it's very very calm and quiet, and then it just starts from nothing. <laughs> that third part is the scene in the fields, yeah. isn't it? That's the third movement. I've never actually experienced it in person. I've heard recordings and even in the recording, you can really hear that the oboe is not present. Yeah. It's not with the rest of the instruments. So you said there about being in a cupboard. I mean, how far away do you need to be and how far can the oboe project? It depends on what the conductor wants, really. Sometimes they want it sort of literally just off stage, but still sort of in the frame but sometimes they want it so far away that you can barely hear it that it's really definitely in the distance so sometimes wow. there's a bit of time spent with me running around to different halls especially when we do it on tour because every hall is different and there's always you know where am I going to be today kind of question mark <laughs> are you off stage for the whole piece then or is it just when that third movement comes you run off stage and find your position or the way we do it I just I never come on stage so I'm just off stage <gasps> In my jeans, <laughs> uh, <laughs> no, no, jeans and trainers. Day. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so literally, but uh, there are some orchestras that will do it. That actually, the, it is a, officially it is in the first oboe part. So there are some right. oboes that quite like to like the sort of the drama or the, some conductors like it of the first oboe sort of getting up and leaving and going off to do it and then coming back on stage. But mostly, it's someone that's doing it away. 
and away. Yeah. And so do you play it any other parts of the piece then? No, not if you do it the way we do it, no. No, uh-huh. so it's just that bit oh, so it, and then I'm gone. Yes. <laughs> and we have heard speaking to musicians in the previous series of LPO Offstage, sometimes when you're waiting for that moment, it's kind of a, a strange feeling that you, you're waiting, you haven't played for the whole piece and then it's your time. How do you prepare for that? It's the same for the choranglet at that point, actually, because the core doesn't play and it's been all this sort of big shout up music and then it's the core starts and and with me answering. So we're both in the same position with that. It's slightly easier for me, probably, because I probably can find a little room that I can sort of toot about and check my reeds working mm. and, and everything. But I sort of play along a little bit with the previous movement because it's quite loud. No one would really hear it. But, you know, as far as which is my favourite bit, it probably is that bit because I think it's really beautiful and then I can get off to the pub early as well. <laughs> so you don't have to stay for the rest of it? No, they don't often bring bring me on for an applause. So oh. <laughs> You wouldn't be allowed to wear your jeans that's then, true. Have you? Well, that's true, I'd have to get yeah, dressed. So. That would ruin all my plans. Yeah. Oh. Um, can I tell an oboe story? Am I allowed to Please, Alice? Henry, tell because me an oboe story. actually the last time I played this piece... There was a hell of a lot going on anyway uh, with the particular uh, performance that we were doing, but it was at the proms. And um, I was completely oblivious to the fact that there'd been this massive drama and that the first oboe who was sitting on stage to play the, you know, the first oboe part on stage, not the one that's a million miles away, his oboe kind of like collapsed just before we were supposed to walk on. So I don't really understand, but basically all bits fell off it or something. Mm-hmm. And it was just kind of, it was unusable. So guy that was playing the offstage oboe said well you can have my oboe and this was at the Albert Hall and how long do you think you have from the beginning of the piece to that point 25 minutes or something yeah yeah probably. so then the orchestra management had 25 minutes to find an oboe <laughs> um, and they went out and they managed to get in contact with the Royal College of Music which is just down the road and they found a student practicing <laughs> whose oboe was stolen from them and uh they ran back and gave it to the guy, I think like literally a couple of minutes before he had to play solo. I can only imagine like how terrifying that must have been. Yeah. And also, well, Alice obviously knows a lot more about this, but it's not simple, is it, to just pick up somebody else's no, oboe? No, no, and, and actually right. the notes, that there's not many notes in it, but they are quite weird notes on the oboe. They're not the most oboe-friendly notes. So yeah, it would be, it would be a bit stressful, oh, yeah. that would be. So. Just about the distance and the on a new oboe or not, but because of the distance, you know, when you play further away, it sounds on stage flatter. So you have to sort of compensate for that as well when you're at a distance because you will sound flatter even though you're not. So it's very difficult to know how you're sounding when you're down there, let alone on another instrument like that guy had to do. So, Well, the actual part that we're speaking about there in the scene in the fields is that call and response. And it is, it's quite haunting, but you really do feel like you could hear sort of almost shepherds mm-hmm. shouting across the mountains. It really comes together really nicely, doesn't it? Yeah, and that, that's exactly what it is supposed to be. And it's, it's used quite a lot, actually. Um, Contalib used it as well in the Songs of the Overn and the singing across the, she- the shepherds. And, of course, at the end when there's no answer from the <laughs> oboe because I'm already in the pub. But, <laughs> <laughs> but, the, uh, but in the story, of course, it's quite, it's quite, yeah, it's haunting and... And it's replaced by the rumbling, and the, the, you know, the ominous, the ominous drums yeah. instead. So, yeah. what is to come? Oh, dramatic. Ah. So, the Symphonie Fantastique is a piece of program music based on the narrative of a musician, probably himself, experiencing intense, unrequited love for an actress that he saw in a play. 
Does this narrative come to your mind when you're hearing it and playing it on stage, Henry? It didn't for a long time because I didn't really know. Uh, us percussion, we're not very sophisticated, obviously. So uh, we're not involved until the very end of the third movement. More recently, I've been involved in some projects where there was an added theatrical element and we did get to deeply understand all the points of the music uh, represent all the way through. So it does really add something extra. It's programmatic in a really obvious way as well. There's a bit right at the end where there's a big snare drum roll, you usually get two or three players on military drums. And before that, the bar before, the strings go dum, dum, boom, boom, like that. And that is the sound of the head kind of rolling down before mm. that. So, so it's very kind of obviously programmatic. And that when you understand the, what those things represent, it, it really brings it to another level, really. So, yeah. Wow. Great. So I'm interested in that theatrical experience that you've had that sort of opened up the story to you what, what was that about there's another orchestra that I'm a technically a member of that I kind of moonlight with occasionally and they're not full-time but they do these special projects so the orchestra called Aurora Orchestra and they learn these pieces from memory wow so that's an added element because you have to spend a lot of time kind of studying the music and, and really internalizing it and also there was a presentation kind of element uh, with an actor reading quotes from diaries from Berlioz had written stuff like that and we had to wander around stage holding up um, mini houses making creating images oh. of uh, this is all on YouTube so you can watch yeah. it if you like but um and then he would talk in between the movements where appropriate and we also had to do kind of stage moves so not dancing but kind of turning around and looking up and wearing masks and that there was just so much extra going on it was really exciting actually the big difference was the having to learn it from memory. So everybody turned up to the first rehearsal already knowing how to nail their parts. Wow. And uh, we spent a lot more time on the ensemble because there are some really challenging ensemble moments in that piece. And they've kind of never sounded better. Yeah, it was a really interesting project to be involved in. Alice, do you think there's a strength in having sort of the visual and the narrative behind the music in, in that way? Or do you think that just hearing it as Berlioz would have written it is the way to do it. I think having the narrative and it being programmatic, is it does make it more accessible, possibly. Mm. Um, and I think that's probably why it's done so much for sort of youth orchestra or sort of entry orchestras, because it's so visual, you know. it's. I can't say I think about the story the whole time, but I, I'm glad I'm aware of it and you can attribute certain things to certain points in the story. But yeah, I do think it's it's a sort of like a tag, isn't it? When someone has a picture or a story to follow, it does make it more easy to for the listener in a lot of ways especially if you're not necessarily used to classical music it's a quite a good piece to start off on Henry what is it about the music as well that makes it so accessible I think each section has kind of moments to shine which is really nice and although he was kind of really ahead of his time and there are actually some very interesting strange harmonic things that he does there are still great tunes as well. So you've got amazing tunes and you've got this idea of the, how do you say it properly in French, ID fix or whatever, the, the like little tune that yep, keeps cropping up all the way through. I guess it subconsciously provides a kind of a link f for yourself all the way through the piece. And I think this, the movements are just so different as well. That's the thing that it really is a, uh, it's a kind of a roller coaster and you get to see the orchestra in so many different lights. I know, you know, obviously the oboe is the most important offstage bit, but there's also a very important percussion offstage section as well. So you've got those added elements. I don't know if that had ever happened really for symphonic music. I, I, I mean, obviously 
theatrical stuff and opera they had sound effect stuff going all the way back to Handel and stuff but um I can't think of another piece which had that kind of important element off stage pre-Berlioz so I think it must have been pretty exciting Mm. for the audience at the time and I think that's you know some of these things they never go away do they you know it's exciting because it's exciting so it doesn't matter if it was a premiere or if you're hearing it 200 years 100 years later 200 years later you know it's still amazing so well I'm intrigued by this percussive offstage I mean we are in LPO offstage right now so we've spoken about the (laughs) oboe what what about that that percussive bit then where does that come in the symphony Sometimes the distant rolling thunder drums at the end of the third movement, I do know of one performance where they were off stage as well. But that adds kind of logistical issues because you'd have to have four extra players to do it without people walking off and on. Wow. And all those players are needed immediately at the beginning of the next movement. So generally that's done on stage and it's what it's written to be on stage. But in the fifth movement, we have two bells a C and a G, and they kind of herald the Desire theme. So it's, it's all about judgment and it's all very ominous. And those bells can be a number of things. I think in the score, it says, if you don't have bells, you can do big octaves on a piano. You can use big giant bass bells with the tubular bells, or if the orchestra can afford it, you can hire some proper church bells. So I've always done it with church bells, which is, it's the best way to, to do it. And these yes. bells, they'll put them off stage somewhere. The particularly difficult thing of doing the bells off stage is whereas Alice has kind of her own time frame to play the music in and it's a call and response, we have to play in time with the orchestra. So you have to do an equation at some point. If if you're lucky, the conductor will give you time to work this out in the rehearsals, but you have to kind of go off stage and play it and they say, no, that was late. So you go back and, oh, okay, that's too early now. And And what I find is I usually end up having to play somewhere between a quaver or a semi-quaver, eighth note or 16th note, before what I hear ahead of the conductor's beat. And that means once the sound has kind of travelled through and out to the front, because we're normally behind the orchestra, it should sound in time. Quite often we're up in an organ, if it's a big hall with a big organ, or we'll be just off stage. But we're, we're always further away than the orchestra from the audience. So we're always having to anticipate rather than kind of sit back on anything. And how do you think that Bolio's writes for your instrument with them when you're in the full ensemble? Obviously, he would have had a sound, maybe a a visual in his mind of what he wanted to create. How does that translate onto your instrument? Does it work, no matter how technical it needs to be? Yeah, I think across the whole of the oboe section with what he's done with the offstage bit, as you said, it's very, very beautiful and haunting. And the coronglay, although that's the only bit that it's in, it's it's so beautiful and it's perfect for the, both of the instruments and it shows off the sort of melancholic singing flavours and colours of the oboe. The first oboe part, it's got an amazing oboe solo in the first movement, but then all the technical stuff and it's got that kind of witchy, nasty, cackly side of the oboe as well. So he really uses the oboe section to its full. The second oboe part is actually really difficult as well. It's really low and grovelly and like the end of the first movement, it's a really horrible bit that you wouldn't really know is horrible but it's it's like really uh, blended and it's all supposed to make the rest of the section sound quite homogenous and that's really nasty as well really difficult <laughs> but it creates a sound that is, is is perfect for that moment at the very end of it I think it's um 
It's the sleepy bit at the very, very end. But anyway, you wouldn't mm-hmm. notice it probably. <laughs> but um, be really, we really, will now. Yeah. We will now. <laughs> well, no, hopefully not. If it's right, you shouldn't notice it. That's the thing about playing second oboe. But yeah, so I think he really plays to the strengths of the, of the oboe in general and the core anglais. The double reeds. Alice, what about the um, what about the bendy notes? That's my favourite. Oh, oh yeah, <laughs> yeah. Is that, where do, where do, does that come in the symphony? That's in the f- beginning of the fifth. There you movement. go. See, this is because I'm not in that bit. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but what, I've, is that I've some... left by there. But yeah, it's uh, there's a note bend in one of the. It's the flute as well. So they just it's the witches, yeah. the cackle, and then there's this this note bend at the end. like that. But was that ever written? Before Berlioz, I don't. I won't hold you no, to it. I what, know. Do you, see, anything see, you Henry's know. much cleverer know than me. He, we've often that's not true. <laughs> often <laughs> discussed this. He knows much more about music than I do. <laughs> what do you mean, Henry? About before Berlioz, as in it like, was added after? As in, is that a technique that had ever been written for on the uh, oboe? With other, with Bef- before with other composers, not, pre- but I pre- don't know for sure. For sure. <laughs> but, okay. Yeah. But lip bends are, you know, it's especially now more modern music, definitely. But I don't know for sure that that had been done before, but don't quote me. <laughs> yeah. What would you call it? Is that an extended technique? Probably, yeah, yeah. Not uh, still? Yeah. The, yeah so so. You use your, use your lips to make the note bend, basically. Yeah. Um, which you can do on the oboe and the flute and woodwind in, instruments in general. But it would have sounded, yeah. Yeah, and it's quite a nasty sound, isn't it? It's quite, again, a haunting bit in a different way. Yeah. So, so. And it's interesting that you you speak about Berlioz and him sort of stretching the technique of the player using the instruments in different ways. There's a a quote from him in 1829 where he said, For some time I've had a descriptive symphony in my brain and when I have released it, I mean to stagger the musical world. And the way that you're sort of speaking about the music now, it sounds like he was able to reach his goal. Mm Mm-hmm. Even now, it's really difficult music. Either, like for the second oboe part, I was saying it's very difficult. You have to have a, quite a specific read. There's the technical passages, not just in this piece, but like Damnation of Faust. It's really difficult. And I often think, you know, I have to practice this a lot to try and get anywhere near it. It's so fast. And I just think players of the time, how on earth did they do it? <laughs> so he really, really pushed boundaries. It's extreme. It's high. It's low. It's, you know, he really tests the player as well, really. <laughs> And there, are there any other interesting ways that he's used percussion and how do you feel that he writes for your instruments? I think he's not as radical for percussion in terms of which instruments are used. It's still standard stuff, timpani, cymbals, mm. bass drum, but he used them in very interesting ways. The bass drum part, which uh, kind of comes into its own at the end of the fifth movement, at the, the end of the piece. This fifth movement, he asks for that, part to be doubled so there are two players which creates this kind of polyphonic kind of stereo thing going on and and adds an extra kind of depth of color and it's and it's scary music crazy music and and it really enhances that and similarly with the timpani so first movement you have timpani on its own the first timpani plays and then the third movement you have four timpanists playing on two sets of timpani they come over, usually you have people from the percussion section come over and they join you and you do your rumbling away, pretending to be thunder, distant thunder. And then from the fourth movement onwards, you have a pair of timpanists, each with a pair of timpani, and they play together all the way through. And that's something that hadn't really happened before. I don't know, had that happened before? I mean, it happens a lot with Mahler and with Holsten later on, but that's a, that's an amazing effect to have two timpanists going hell for leather at the same time. And they, they really, once again, come into their own 
they start the the march to the scaffold. I think when you were marched to the scaffold, there would usually be people processing with drums that had a cloth cover over them, mm. playing a rhythm. It's very evocative and foreboding. The sound of doom, and then and then later on at the end of the um, fifth movement as well, there are some kind of technical crossover things that you have to do, and it's it's really amazing music to play. Wow! Oh, Alice and Henry, it's been so great hearing your unique experiences of playing this piece throughout your careers, which is really nice—a true soundtrack to your musicianship. Berlioz's Symphonie Fantastique. Thanks, Yolanda. Pleasure. Thanks. Well, that's it for now from me, Yolanda Brown on LPO Offstage. Thanks again to Alice Monday and Henry Baldwin. Please get in touch using the hashtag OffstagePod. And thank you for listening. Do join me for the next episode of LPO Offstage, where we'll be learning what's entailed in being a desk partner in the orchestra. Mm-hmm.